0: Welcome back, future doctors. Thanks for tuning in again. I hope you all had a great and safe holiday season as well as a good start to a new year. Uh, The year of 2020 has been very challenging for all of us, uh, to say the least. So my hope is that this year will be much better for you and that positive energy fills your coming year. So today we're going to talk about a topic that many of you have already encountered and or are encountering now as we speak. It actually has a name, and it's a hot topic in the field of academic performance for minorities. The term is stereotype threat. I would like to start out by sharing two different scenarios to help you understand what stereotype threat is. So let's go ahead and start. So here's my scenario number one. You are in 11th grade in your high school year. Thus far since ninth grade, you have been getting good grades because ultimately you want to go to college. As a matter of fact, you are really considering becoming a doctor. With that said, you realize that you would be the first doctor in your family and possibly the first person to graduate from college. You don't personally know any doctors, but the thought of it sounds appealing. Well, here you are now in 11th grade, and it's time to take your SAT. Perhaps your school at some point in the past two years has provided you with a practice SAT somewhere along the way, which at least you kind of know what to expect. On the flip side, no test preparation has been presented to you about the SAT, but you know it's a test that you have to take in order to apply to college. So on the day of the exam, you show up to the test site and clearly you do not know anyone around you. What you do realize is that most of the other students that are going to take the test are Asian or white. You may then think to yourself, they are probably going to do very good on this exam, especially Asians, they are so good at math. At least that's the stereotype. They probably have parents who went to college and probably even have doctors in their families. You are hopeful that perhaps you can do good too. You feel nervous and keep telling yourself to not compare yourself to others. Honestly though, you feel out of place at the test site. You feel like a foreigner. You feel more aware of your presence in this situation. Then you think about perhaps what a parent, teacher, or counselor has told you along the way. Keep pushing hard through this and you too can be as good as all of your peers. The SAT then starts. You read your questions, and sometimes catch yourself reading them all over again. Inside you feel like you know this, and you usually can solve these questions at home, but for some reason, you're having a more difficult time understanding the material right now. You can feel your heart racing. Why is it so hard to focus? You are sure you will probably not do well on the SAT now, and everyone else around you is doing well. You go on and push through to finish the SAT the best you can. So that's scenario one. Now we're gonna go ahead and listen to a scenario two. So I want you to imagine the situation. You have officially started your first year of college at a very prestigious university. You graduated at the top of your class and maintained nearly a 4.0 GPA throughout high school. You even got an excellent score on your SAT. Your high school teachers always praised you about how smart you are and told you that you would be very successful. They told you that you would do great in college and not to worry about anything. You start college knowing that you want to be a doctor. You have heard that in college all the pre-med courses are very competitive. They are often worded as the weeding out classes. In other words, the university makes the pre-med courses so hard that there are some students deemed to fail, so not everyone gets to be a doctor. Anyhow, you have prepared for this your entire high school life. Well, you start college and soon realize that your fellow university students look nothing like the other students did in your high school. Every time you walk into a classroom, you feel different. Sometimes you can feel like classmates look at you. Not that they are being rude or anything, but you stand out and you know they notice. You scope out the lecture hall to see where you can sit and try to blend in. You decide to sit in the back of the class or at one of the far ends of the class. It feels like you get noticed a little less, You get through your first couple of weeks of pre-med courses and study daily in your dorm room. You've met friends already on campus, but not many of your friends are thinking about becoming doctors. So you tend to study on your own more often than not. Sometimes you get stuck on study material and keep trying to figure it out on your own. You are not too comfortable asking other students or your TA or professor for help. Sometimes you wish you could ask questions during lecture, but don't feel confident enough to do it. Instead, you stay quiet. You keep telling yourself that you can do this since you had great grades in high school. Plus, you don't want anyone to think you're not smart enough to be there. Then comes midterms, your first set of college exams. You go and sit at your usual spot where you can better blend in with your class. You feel your heart racing. You can't help but observe that you are in a class with a lot of Asian and white students. You're aware that Asian and white students do good in college and come from families that are well-educated or have fancy careers. A lot of doctors are Asian and white. Anyhow, you shift your focus on yourself and think, I can do this too. I can be good enough as well. I have to prove to myself and everyone around and show the world that I can too be successful in pre-med courses. The professor then announces the start time of the test. Everyone suddenly looks down and begins to test. You are trying to control how fast your heart is going and trying your best to focus. You find yourself reading some of the questions over and over again. It's kind of harder to understand the questions right now. Then you get a question that you are pretty confident in. You find the answer immediately, but then you stop yourself and think, wait, am I sure this is right? You read the question over again and all of the possible answers maybe two or three times to ensure you will not miss it. Then you look at the clock. You start racing to take the test again against the clock. You look up for a pretty quick second and see everyone taking the test. You for a minute think they must be doing better than you since they look pretty confident. You shift focus again and get back to the test. You realize that you are struggling and surely will miss some questions, but all you can do is at least guess and give it your best shot. Do you think these scenarios sound familiar to you? What about you, Dr. Marina?
1: Absolutely. Heck yes. So, you know, I remember taking the SAT in high school and doing almost exactly what you described in scenario one. I went to a very diverse high school that was mostly Latino and Black, but when I took the SAT, I remember noticing that there were less Latino and Black students compared to my normal classes and, like you mentioned, more White and Asian students. I think it's because out of my senior class of almost 1,000 students, the ones that were taking the SAT and planning to go to college, they tended to be less diverse than the high school as a whole. This, unfortunately, is the national trend. I looked it up and about 33% of white Americans get four-year college degrees, but only 19% of Blacks and about 16% of Latinos or Hispanics. So if you're looking around that SAT room and noticing something's different, you are not imagining things. Also with scenario two, you mentioned, you know, kind of just being afraid to ask questions, being afraid to stand out, sitting in the back or the side of the class, not feeling confident and asking questions of your professors and TAs. And that also sounded very familiar. I think there have been so many times also when I'm taking a test and I just look around the room to see like, oh, is everybody else having an easy time? Is it just me struggling? And I think lots of times we really can't tell based on just looking at someone, but we tend to imagine in our minds that, oh, everybody else is having an easy time. It's just me that's struggling. And I definitely did that a lot as well.
0: Yes, so exactly what you said. I think most of us minorities feel that way. I think everybody feels some sort of anxiety, but there's that added pressure. So um, definitely agree, Dr. Marina. So I'm sure that these scenarios seem familiar to many of the minority students listening today. What you've just heard is what's known as stereotype threat. It means that a situation can make you afraid of confirming stereotypes about your social group. In other words, if you find yourself in a situation that usually holds bad ideas, stereotypes, or stigma about a group that you identify with, it creates this internal pressure on you to try to disprove the stereotype. In the case of the SAT example, if you are a Latino or Black student, you might be afraid of confirming the stereotype that Latino or Black students score lower on standardized tests. And that creates extra stress in your mind and body that affects your ability to focus on the actual test. While all students feel some sort of test anxiety, many minorities in these types of situations experience even more stress or anxiety due to the stereotype threat. Dr. Marina, I know you're also familiar with the concept of stereotype threat. When did you first learn about it?
1: I first learned about stereotype threat, I think it was my last year of medical school. That was the year that Dr. Claude Steele, who's a Black psychologist at Stanford University, published his book called Whistling Vivaldi which is all about stereotype threat. I happened to hear about it on a radio program, and it made me curious enough to go and buy it and read it. And when I read it, let me tell you, so many light bulbs lit up in my mind. If you listen to episode three, where I share my story, you might remember that I struggled in many ways in college and medical school. I even had to take an extra year to complete medical school because I failed some exams. I also struggled with depression because I got down on myself for not being quote-unquote smart enough. So when I read the book and I learned about the powerful effect that stereotype threat can have, even on very capable minority students, I was finally able to look back at my experience and make sense of some of those academic struggles. I always knew deep down that I was just as capable as my classmates, but when it came to taking tests, I had so much internal pressure to do well. So when I read the book, I learned that my test performance wasn't just about how smart I was, but it was also affected by this powerful force of stereotype threat. It actually really liberated me from some of those depressing thoughts that I'd been having for years. Those thoughts like I wasn't smart or good enough to be a doctor because of a few test scores. Reading this book was just really eye-opening for me. So as you can see, stereotype threat affected my path to becoming a doctor. But Dr. Zuma, speaking more generally, what does stereotype threat have to do with becoming a doctor?
0: It is important to discuss stereotype threat because there are many studies that have repeatedly shown that it is a contributing factor to longstanding racial and gender gaps in academic performance. This in turn leads to less minorities in academic professions like medicine, science, and engineering. You need the test scores, the good grades to get into college and medical school, right? Well, if your grades or test scores are lower because of stereotype threat, then it can make it quite challenging to show at a university or a medical school that you do have the potential to become a doctor because your grades and test scores may not show it. Unfortunately, medical schools care a lot about those grades and test scores, and even a few points less on your GPA or MCAT can make a difference in whether you get in or not. Historically, it had been thought that perhaps academic performance and intelligence could be due to genetics, and you were either born with certain smarts or not. It was also thought that certain groups had higher intelligence than others. Believe it or not, people used to think that females were less intelligent than males due to pure gender. The same goes for many groups of minorities. Through time, our understanding of intelligence has evolved, thankfully, but it is still a work in progress it is important to consider other factors that can influence academics such as poverty, access to good education in the early years, parental education, and so forth. We also know, however, that stereotype threat plays a pretty significant role in academic performance among high-achieving minorities. And this is very important if we want to diversify medicine.
1: Yes, more diversity, please. In the book Whistling Vivaldi, Dr. Steele reviews a lot of research studies that came to show First, that stereotype threat exists, and second, how it affects people's performance on tests.
0: Can you describe
1: some of those research studies, Dr. Zulma?
0: Yes, there are way too many, but we will go over a few so that hopefully those that are listening to us can understand what we're talking about. I will be using some examples from Dr. Steele's book. He has a PhD in psychology and has spent much of his career researching stereotype threat. I highly recommend you read this book if you want to learn more. First, I would like to start out with why the author of the book called it Whistling Vivaldi. He shares a story of an African-American New York Times columnist, Brent Staples, during his psychology graduate student years walking the streets of Chicago. Young Staples, wearing his everyday clothing, could walk through the streets of Chicago and would recognize that non-African Americans would lock arms and avoid contact out of what seemed like fear of him. Out of discomfort of people's reactions, he started to avoid the situation by turning into side streets that were out of his way. He then shares that out of nervousness about the fear he was instilling in others by his mere presence, he started whistling a classical song from Vivaldi. He soon noticed that when he did this, people were not as tense walking by him and some even smiled at him. Whistling classical music let those around him know that he was not the stereotype of African-American males in the neighborhood and the stereotype there that was being held was at African-American males were violence prone. Just by doing this insinuated, he was educated and knowledgeable of high white culture. This made him less threatening. Dr. Marina, given you are a minority, a female, and in the field of science, have you ever had to do anything or change something about yourself to help people see you for who you are?
1: Yes, Absolutely. So where do I even start? (laughs) But one example that actually affects my day-to-day life has to do with something as simple as the clothes I wear. Ever since medical school, I have not liked wearing scrubs. Of course, like lots of doctors wear scrubs. But the reason I don't like it is, one, because I've got curves and those boxy pajamas that are called scrubs, they just don't fit very well. And two, and more importantly, because I started to notice that it was easy for patients to assume that I was a nurse because I didn't look like the typical doctor. In residency, I tried to wear black or dark blue scrubs that looked different from the ones that nurses wore, and I would wear my white coat over them so that I wouldn't be mistaken for a nurse. Even now, though, as a doctor working in urgent care, I noticed that a lot of the male doctors I work with, they all wear scrubs to work, but not many of the female doctors. I have to make that extra effort to buy professional-looking clothes instead of just wearing scrubs so that I'm perceived more easily as a doctor by my patients.
0: I definitely have that same experience as well. Uh, the perception, I think, when they see women and then us also being minorities, mm-hmm. it makes, the, in the forefront of others, it feels like being a doctor is not the profession this person probably is. So definitely agree with you there too, Dr. Marina. All right, so let's talk about some research studies that have shown the power of stereotype threat and how it affects performance, both academic and non-academic. I would like to mention that everyone, regardless of race or ethnic background, is subject to stereotype threat. It is very much situation dependent. This is why I wanted to show varying examples to give you more of an understanding. So we're going to go over a first study that took place in Princeton and it studied white and black students doing a golf task. In one group, the students were told that the golf task would measure sports strategic intelligence. The other group was told it would measure sports natural athletic ability. The results showed that blacks did worse on the golf task when they were told the test measured intelligence and whites did better. On the flip side, black students did better when they were told that it measured athletic ability and whites did worse. So as you can see, Both groups felt a stereotype threat that affected their performance. The Black students were affected by the risk of proving an old negative stereotype threat that Blacks are less intelligent. White students' performance was affected by the negative stereotype that whites are less likely to have natural athletic ability. Uh, So then we're going to go on to another study that I want to share, and they call this study The Eye of the Storm. So an elementary school teacher created a situation in her classroom to show students how It feels to be discriminated against. One day, she told students at the start of the class that blue eyed students were smarter, cleaner, and better behaved than the brown eyed children, who were told they were dumber, dirtier, and badly behaved. The blue eyed children got to sit in front of the class, and the brown eyed children had to sit in the back of the class and got seconds when it came to playground activities. Obviously, the brown eyed kids showed a lot of emotional downturn, and they had more trouble focusing and remembering instructions. The teacher also did math and spelling lessons with both groups and realized that the brown-eyed kids performed more poorly than the blue-eyed kids. On the next day, she switched things around. She said that she had made a mistake and that actually the brown-eyed kids were the superior ones and the blue-eyed kids were inferior. She observed the exact opposite of the first day, with brown-eyed kids performing better in math and spelling. This is interesting because it was just simply by telling the children for one day that they were not good enough that made a huge difference in their behavior and their academic performance.
1: That's such a fascinating study, Dr. Zulma. I remember watching a video about it. It was presented in one of my psychology classes, and it was just so fascinating because you see just these little kids that are, I don't know how young they were exactly, but they were maybe in like first or second grade. They weren't that old. And just by being told by one person in their lives, this lie that a certain eye color makes you either superior or inferior, that can have such a powerful effect on how you feel about yourself, on how you behave, on how well you do on something like spelling and math in elementary school. So it's just a really powerful study. And it really goes to show how powerful stereotypes within our society can be.
0: Yeah. And I think it's also interesting that just from one day to the next, this teacher can tell these kids, oh, no, wait a minute, you're actually smart. And in just doing so, they perform better. Uh huh. So it's just it's really interesting. Definitely. So let's go on to the third study that I want to share. Now, let's discuss how gender can also be influenced by stereotype threat. Women have historically had a negative stereotype that they are not as smart as men in the field of math and science. The first female doctor, Elizabeth Blackwell, was in 1849, and she faced many obstacles. She would not be allowed to work at hospitals or attend conferences simply for being female. The low female representation continued for many years, actually. In 1950, just 70 years ago, which is not that long ago, there were still only 5% of doctors that were women. Fortunately, today about half of all medical students are women, so we have come a long way. I think it is important to discuss the history of women in medicine because you can then understand where the stereotype threat in women comes from when it comes to math and science today. Although the numbers of women have improved, even today most women feel stereotype threat about their math abilities compared to men, and this affects their test scores in math classes. But studies have shown that if the stigma is removed from the situation, women will perform just as well as men. One study showed that just having more men or women in the the testing room can affect how women perform on the test. If there are more men, they are reminded that they are women in a male-dominated field, and they do worse. If there are more women, they are not reminded about this, and they do better. So basically, there's a social cue that our minds can pick up from just the setting alone without saying anything. The same effect translates to minorities in many settings. And then the last study that I wanted to share actually takes place at a high school. And it's actually a high school um, in Los Angeles. The study had been done previously with Stanford students, and the researchers wanted to see if the results would be replicated in this high school. The researcher gave a 30-minute verbal test from the SAT. The groups consisted of black and white students. In one group, the students were told that the test was to measure their verbal ability, which would be the stereotype threat group. And the other group was told it was not diagnostic of verbal ability, but it was more so to look at problem solving in general. So therefore, they removed the stereotype threat. The researcher further asked all the students if they cared about school or identified with being good students. So what did he find? Black students did worse on the tests when they were told it was measuring verbal ability, which was a stereotype threat. Black students performed just as well as the white students when they were told it was problem-solving tests. So again, when they removed the stereotype threat, they did better. This was the same outcome that was seen with the Stanford University students. However, the study also found that stereotype threat only applied to black students who cared about academics. For the black students who did not have much interest in academics, their performance was equally poor in both situations, and similar to the outcome of whites who also didn't care about academics. Therefore, stereotype threat depends not only on the situation, but the value that the person places in that situation. In other words, the more you care about doing well and disproving a stereotype, the more negatively you are affected by the stereotype threat. Dr. Marina, can you share some personal experiences of stereotype threat? Of course.
1: As I mentioned, I think it affected me on many tests in college and in medical school. It's interesting, though, that after I read the book by Dr. Steele, I never had issues with tests after that. That could be a coincidence. Of course, I was done with medical school by that time, but there were still licensing exams and board exams I had to take, and I passed all of them the first time around. It's amazing to me how just becoming aware of something and how it might affect you empowers you to start to overcome it. Don't get me wrong, tests are still hard, but I started to truly believe that I was just as capable and smart as my peers, even if my tests didn't always reflect it. And that belief affected my overall ability to learn and to perform. Another more recent experience that reminded me of stereotype threat was right after residency. I really wanted to do a fellowship program in pediatric emergency medicine so that I could become a pediatric ER doctor instead of just a general pediatrician. My last year of residency, I applied to a few fellowship programs and I interviewed at a few places. I started to notice how anxious I felt being judged and evaluated in this setting. I would look around during the interviews at how many of the other applicants were minorities like me and how many were female minorities. But let me tell you, there were not that many. I felt all those old but very familiar feelings of stereotype threat bubble up to the surface. I didn't end up getting accepted to a fellowship and ended up quite happy in general pediatrics. But I do look back on that and wonder, would I have been accepted if stereotypes and the stereotype threat they produce did not exist? What about you, Dr. Zulma? Can you share some personal experiences of dealing with stereotype threat? Uh,
0: Yeah, I've, I've experienced a lot of them, just like you mentioned, Dr. Marina. So firstly, I did not do great on the SAT, but got good grades in high school. At my high school, we did get some practice SAT exams to help us prepare and would do okay on them. These were done in a classroom setting, and what I'm talking about is a practice SATs, and with classmates that I knew, and again, my high school was much more diverse than college. However, when I took my SAT, I was that teenager in Scenario 1 that we talked about uh, initially. I had such a hard time focusing, so I didn't get a, a great score. I was surrounded by people who did not look like me, and I felt that extra pressure. It just really sucked, quite honestly, that my good grades can feel like they could go down the toilet with college admissions because I didn't score well on one test. I applied to about three to four colleges and luckily got accepted to one. The others rejected me, and I truly think it was because of my SAT score. Then, when I had to do my MCAT to get into medical school, I didn't get a great score either. Once again, it felt like my science and college GPAs meant nothing because of just one test. I didn't get directly accepted when I applied and was conditionally accepted for all of them. The one school that ended up giving me an opportunity told me I had to basically complete a post-bac program for one year and prove that I could get excellent grades. I did achieve this task, and I will say I did well throughout medical school academically, sometimes even better than students who got significantly higher MCAT scores than me. Even though I did well, I did develop this chronic state of anxiety along the way, and then I shed many tears as well when I was alone. I think still, as a doctor, I still experience stereotype threat, but I am aware of, of it. I struggle a lot with being confident in asking questions in the middle of a work setting, so when we're having work meetings. I, and I know my colleagues, and they've never made me feel like I don't belong there, but I, I still have this internal anxiety when I want to ask questions in a meeting setting because I have this fear of being judged. I have improved and come a long way, but I'm still till today working on it. Can stereotype threat affect your physical health or your physiology, Dr. Zulma? Interestingly enough, your body does respond to stereotype threat. Firstly, a stereotype threat affects what parts of your brain you actually use. In one study, researchers used an MRI machine to look at the activity of the brain while students took a math test. They found that under stereotype threat, the regions of the brain that are being used are the ones we usually use for emotional processing. However, when the stereotype threat is removed, the parts of the brain that became active were the typical regions used for math problem solving. So what does this mean? Under stereotype threat, during a challenging exam, our brains are more busy dealing with the emotional thoughts than the solving math problems. We might not really recognize that it's happening, but this is what the brain studies show. This helps to explain why students facing stereotype threat do worse on tests. Another interesting point is that chronic stereotype threat exposure, which leads to chronic anxiety, has also been associated with decreased sense of well-being and happiness overall. It could also affect our mental health.
1: Um, Yeah, that sounds pretty familiar to me. (laughs) Like I said, you know, it was so fascinating to me that after I read this book, I mean, I had already been going to therapy and been on medication for a couple of years and I was finishing medical school. But after that, I never had to go back to medication. Um, I did. I have seen a therapist on and off when things happen. But yeah, like I've never gone back to that state of depression that I was in during medical school. And I think just, you know, it's amazing to me how powerful just being aware of The things that affect our performance, like the stereotype threat, can be because all of a sudden it went from me blaming myself for not being smart enough to me being able to objectively see, oh, there are these other things that are affecting my test performance. And it's not just me, it's not just my ability. So it was really, really transformational.
0: Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Marina. I think that's very insightful for many to hear. And hopefully, if anyone listening today is struggling with this, listening to what Dr. Marina said can really be life-changing when it comes to academics. Along these lines, another interesting thing that they found with stereotype threat is that blood pressure has also been shown to increase during stereotype threat situations, even though one may report to not feel anxious. So again, you can see how this can affect your body and not just our minds.
1: Yeah. And in the book, Dr. Steele sort of points out how unfortunately, communities of color tend to suffer more from things like high blood pressure um, and other chronic conditions. And the theory of that is that, you know, it's all that chronic stress from stereotypes in society, from poverty, from all of the other associated factors that really contribute to this chronic state of stress that sometimes we're not even really aware about on a conscious level, but they are having effects on our body, on our physiology, on a day-to-day basis. But now that we know what stereotype threat is, what can we do about it? What can society do and what can individuals do?
0: Again, in uh, referencing back to the book with Selina Valdi, there's been many studies that have been done to see if it can provide as clues as possible solutions to address decreasing stereotypes. Again, remember, essentially everyone experiences stereotype threat depending on the setting. It is not exclusive to minorities, but because our focus in this podcast is to help address the issue with the low number of minority doctors, we're going to focus on this. So one, getting to critical mass. What this means is that numbers matter. When there are enough minorities in a given setting, the individuals feel more comfortable. They aren't constantly reminded by looking around that they don't belong, and they feel less stereotype threat. When you as a minority see not just one or two, but many minorities around you, you feel more accepted. You feel less marginalized. Because there is more diversity, there are less social cues telling you that you don't belong. Essentially, increasing the numbers of minorities in colleges, medical schools, and workplaces really does help. We need more minority doctors in all fields. We need more minorities, not just as doctors, but also as teachers, leaders, and CEOs within medical schools and medical centers. Studies have shown that Black and Latino students have a lot less stereotype threat when professors are of shared ethnic backgrounds. Dr. Marina, can you tell me your critical mass experience given you attended a prestigious university? Sure. So when I got to Stanford, I was definitely
1: stepping outside of my comfort zone. My freshman year, I was in a multicultural dorm with a lot of minorities, so when I was there in my dorm, I felt pretty comfortable. But when I stepped outside of my dorm into my classes and other settings overall, I felt like a brown splotch on a white canvas. I wish I had known about this concept of stereotype threat at the time because it could have helped me make more sense of the stress I was feeling. Sometimes I really questioned whether I belonged there, But most of the time, thankfully, I was pretty stubborn and I wanted to prove that I belonged there. So I kept going. In fact, I think I did a lot of what Dr. Steele in his book calls over-efforting. I wanted to prove so badly that I could succeed as a pre-med student that often I worked way too hard, but not necessarily in the best way possible. Maybe we'll have an episode on over-efforting at some point. It's a pretty interesting topic. What about you, Dr. Zulma?
0: Very similar when I think about academically from college on, definitely the, that critical mass was an issue. In college, especially, again, when you go into the sciences and math, uh, there's very few minorities in those classes. And even in my, in my medical school class, I think from 120 plus total students for my class, there was about five minorities in that class. So it's a very, very small percentage as well. And the other thing that I also noticed while I was in medical school was the lack of doctor teachers that were minorities. I think I can count them on one hand. And I think that makes a huge difference because when I was doing, say, rotations or even just doing clinical practice exams, and if the doctor teachers were minorities, I just felt more at ease than when not because I felt like maybe I was being judged by the other doctor teachers. You know, Doctor Marina, I I find it interesting when I heard that you actually were in a dorm. It looks like they would Mm -hmm. clump all minorities into that dorm. My my college didn't Mm -hmm. do that, so that's that's very interesting. I didn't know that some colleges and universities did that.
1: It was, it was an optional thing. It was like one of the dorms on campus was this multicultural themed dorm called Casa Zapata. And so when you filled out your like paperwork to start freshman year, you could say whether you were interested in being in that dorm or not. So it was by choice. It was certainly not all minorities that were in there. If you didn't want to be there, you could be in another uh, regular dorm for sure. But I felt for me, I felt like that would be kind of a safer space, like a more comfortable space for me to start out. Um, And it was actually a really positive experience my first year. It was a great dorm Um, and it was a pretty popular dorm too. a lot of people wanted to be there because of that multicultural and more diverse experience. I also want to say one thing, when you were mentioning like that in our medical school classes, there were five or six, you know, minority students, Um, we're talking about underrepresented minorities. So not necessarily like East Asians and South Asians, because there were definitely many of them Mm -hmm. as well. But talking about underrepresented minorities like Blacks, Latinos, Native Americans, and some of those other very underrepresented groups.
0: Yes, correct. Thank you for clarifying that. So um, another thing that Dr. Steele talked about as far as things that we, we should address is changing the narrative. This basically means changing your perspective. Often as minorities in a school setting, we choose to spend time with people who are like us or we spend time alone because we can't find people who are like us. That means that when we struggle, it's easy to feel like we're the only one struggling or that there's something wrong with us, but everyone else has a perfect life. Something that can help us overcome these feelings is hearing the experiences of other students. For example, you could reach out to someone a few years ahead of you and find out how they got past their struggles and succeeded. You can also force yourself to mingle with students that don't look like you, because if you do this, you will come to see that everyone struggles in one way or another. White, Black, Latino, Asian, mixed race. College and medical school are hard for most people. These groups can help you to learn some some of the strategies that other students use to succeed. Spending some time in mixed groups has actually been shown in studies to help raise the grades of minorities. Another way to change your narrative is adopting a growth mindset. If you haven't already listened to our podcast on growth mindset, please go listen to it. It will transform the way you think. Growth mindset teaches us that intelligence is not fixed, but can change over time with effort and training. Dr. Marina, when do you think you started to learn to change your narrative? So in that
1: multicultural dorm
0: that I mentioned,
1: my roommate my freshman year was Chinese. She was of Chinese origin, and she ended up starting out as a pre-med student like me, but ended up changing to a humanities major by the end of her freshman year. I had had my own stereotypes, of course, about Chinese students, unfortunately. And I assumed that because she was Chinese, chemistry and science classes would be pretty easy for her. So I was actually surprised when she talked to me about how hard they were and how she really hated Mm -hmm. them, especially chemistry. So that forced me to change my own stereotype about Asians and their quote unquote natural academic abilities. She ended up majoring in something else and she really loved it. I also hung out with a lot of Caucasian friends in college because I was heavily involved in a student group. Affiliated with my religion. Most of the students in the group happened to be white. Because I hung out with them, I learned that they also struggled in classes and they faced hard things in their life. So, in some ways, this increased my feelings of not belonging because I was a darker skinned person among a lot of Caucasians. But at the same time, I got to recognize how we were actually more similar in many ways than different. And that helped me to figure out how to kind of navigate the college experience. Because I didn't feel so alone. It wasn't like I was the only one struggling (laughs) with all my problems. I saw that even my white classmates, they struggled too. And classes were hard for them too.
0: Isn't it so crazy how we just presume these things and make assumptions about everything and it's our own mind doing it to us? (laughs)
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like we buy into the stereotypes too. It's not just that other people are (laughs) like thinking these negative things about us, but sometimes we start to believe them too. And if we don't force ourselves to have experiences that challenge those stereotypes, then we're never going to unlearn them.
0: Yeah, there's something called self-fulfilling prophecies, which is Uh that you have these thoughts about yourself that you actually start fulfilling them. So Mm -hmm. it's just interesting to see how it just really comes out of our own minds and not necessarily anybody saying anything. All right, moving on. So then um, Dr. Steele then also talks about self-affirmation in addressing stereotype threat. This means that if you reflect on values that are important about you, you are less likely to experience distress when confronted with information that threatens your sense of self. You basically train your mind to have a positive image about yourself, so when threatening situations arise, you are less likely to react. Dr. Marina, any thoughts on how you have worked on or are working on improving your self-affirmation? Yeah, life
1: involves doing a lot of new and difficult things. Taking exams, moving away from home, getting married, having a family, facing illness, injury, and even death sometimes. Before I do something new or difficult, I like to remind myself of two things. First, I remind myself of all of the times in my past that I've done something hard and succeeded. And second, I remind myself that even if I fail, it is not the end of the world. <laughs> so these reminders to myself of my past successes and the fact that failure is not final, they really help. They don't take away the stress or the fear completely, but they do help a lot.
0: Yes. Remember, failure is not final. Absolutely. <laughs> I can't stress that. and em- I, I just can't stress that enough. <laughs> uh-huh. All right. And then the other topic that Dr. Steele talks about is mentoring, which we've mentioned um, before. I cannot stress enough uh, how important this is. Having someone that can guide you along the way really goes a long way. It helps when someone has already walked the trail that you are walking. Even if they haven't had exactly the same experiences, having some shared experiences can help them guide and encourage you. Like we've said before, don't be afraid to reach out to others for help. If there's a professor or other mentor you might be able to connect with, even if they are not exactly like you, ask them to be a mentor. Ask them questions. Ask them for advice. We are going to have a whole episode dedicated to finding a mentor soon, so please stay tuned. Yeah, I
1: wanted to mention one thing here too on mentorship. Dr. Steele, in a video online that I found after he published his book, he talked about a study that showed that freshman students in college in their first year of college some of those students were shown a video that was by a senior in college it was a 1 hour long video that where the senior basically just talked about their experience in college and in this case it was i think it was black students listening to a black senior talk about his college experience. And he basically just told the story of how when he was a freshman, he felt like he was really alone and he struggled and things were hard and he felt like giving up. But then he goes on to share how he just persevered um, and he managed to like find friends and find inspiring experiences and um, get interested in science and find mentors. And by the end of it, he had succeeded and he loved science and he was you know he was having a great success in college but that experience of freshman black students watching just that one hour video so this study that they did followed them along the four years and found that at the end of the four years the black students that had watched that video had a whole half grade higher overall in their gpa compared to black students who had not watched the video So that's the difference between a 3.0 GPA and a 3.5 GPA. (laughs) Just from watching a video, you could increase your GPA by that much. And, you know, I think he makes the point that the effect is that basically you have a mentor, you have a little bit of a mentor. You watch someone share their experience. And so when you go through the same experience, you don't feel so alone. And you can look up to someone that went through the same exact things as you're going through and say, you know what, that person did it, so I can do it too. And you can learn lessons about how they approached their struggles and their problems. And so I think that's really a lot of the power of mentorship is just having someone who has gone through similar struggles to your own and seeing that they did it so you can do it too.
0: Yeah, you know, as you're saying that, I just think about the times where I was struggling I would think about some of those mentors I had along the way that would share personal things about themselves. And those stories were the ones that would pop into my head Mm -hmm. and get me to keep going um, within that situation. So as you're saying all that, it just makes me think about how important it is to have that foundation of a mentor just right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And like you said, we look forward to having a whole episode dedicated to this in the future. So stay tuned. All right. So I hope you have achieved a better understanding of what stereotype threat is and why perhaps you may feel the way you feel when you enter a certain situation or while you are taking an exam that places a lot of weight on your future, like the SAT or the MCAT. Unfortunately, since stereotype threat does affect our performance for reasons that may be out of our control, minorities in the sciences and medicine end up avoiding these careers and decide to drop out and change paths. I did this but I found my way back, thankfully. This is why I'm here today to educate you on this topic. While schools and universities need to continue to make changes that support what research has shown to increase the number of minorities in science and medical fields and decrease stereotype threat, there are at least things you can do in the future to help this situation. Think about becoming doctors, and then shoot for being the top administrators of your medical school campus and medical center. Perhaps think about being medical school professors. Perhaps think about being on the medical school or college university admissions committee. And most importantly, remember to become mentors to others. For now, however, let's start by changing your narrative so that when you are confronted with these situations, perhaps you can deal with them a little bit better. Remember when we talked about women representing about 5% of doctors in the U.S. about 70 years ago? Well, based on the AMC data in 2018, about 5.8% of doctors are Hispanic and 5% are Black. The number is less for Native Americans. So I leave you with this. Let us not have to wait 70 years to see an increase of minority doctors in medicine. Let's make it happen now. Well, we hope you learned something. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Give us feedback, what you like, what you don't what topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, what questions you have about becoming a doctor, pre-med classes, or applying to medical school. Remember, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and through our website at www.futureminoritydoctor.com. Please, please share with your friends and families to grow our family of future minority doctors as well. And thank you for listening and have a wonderful day. Peace and love all. Bye, everyone.